0: I've edited the second broadcast very slightly for time. As usual, the website points to the original source material. That's unwelcomeguests.net slash 740. This is episode 902
1: of For the Record, entitled... The Underground Reich and the Deep Politics of the CIA, quote, Privacy Advocates, unquote. Update on the adventures of Eddie the Friendly Spook. This is being recorded on April 27th of the year 2016. We are going to update the very complex and both geographically and temporally far-reaching uh, facets of L'Affaire Snowden, the intelligence operation being fronted for by Eddie the Friendly Spook, Snowden, an individual I have also termed the peach fuzz fascist, because he is just exactly that, and the obverse Oswald, because he is just exactly that as well, whereas Lee Harvey Oswald was trafficked around, including to the former Soviet Union, then framed for killing President Kennedy, something he did not do and killed before he could defend himself, and then portrayed as a lone nut slash communist slash marxist villain uh from that point forward. Uh, so, too, Eddie the Friendly Spook has been trafficked around internationally, only instead of being framed for a crime and labeled a villain and eliminated, he has been portrayed as a hero and has, through his actions been the front man or the point element of a far-ranging intelligence operation which has uh, a number of goals, Uh, the destabilization of the Obama administration, the deep-sixing of the Obama administration's reboot with Russia. It foreshadowed uh, military and political and economic confrontation with China. It was also an assault on some of the very high-tech industries in the U.S. that have responded by uh, increasing encryption. And basically, uh, they have fallen into the trap that Eddie the Friendly Spook has laid for them. It also was, as a major goal, intended to destabilize the NSA and also to facilitate Germany's inclusion in the Five Eyes spying network, also sometimes called the Echelon network or system as well. It's a very deep, complex operation, one of the most important political phenomena of our time, and one that has been fundamentally misunderstood. I've done an awful lot of shows about Snowden and Lafayette, Snowden as I call it, uh, there is nowhere near time enough to go into them. Uh, they are archived on the com website, along with long, r- article-length written descriptions featuring the various texts. What we're going to be doing in this show is recapping a number of elements that we have examined in the past in order to help understand some of the historical evolution underlying aspects of Raphael Snowden. Something to think about in this context as we will be examining what I call the Underground Reich, literally a Third Reich that went underground after World War II and that has perpetuated itself in a very effective fashion in the decades since. The Mafia, it began as a resistance movement in 12th and 13th century Sicily to Norse and Saracen invaders, basically uh, Viking and uh, Turkish invaders in 12th and 13th century Sicily. It then perpetuated itself, spread around the world, and of course uh, no one disputes the existence of the mafia or its influence, not only in the U.S., but in its native Sicily and elsewhere in Italy and Europe. If someone had uh, proposed to a political researcher, perhaps, in the 12th or 13th century, that the mafia would have perpetuated itself uh, centuries later and around the globe, including on continents that had yet to be discovered, they might have been met with incredulity. They would have been called, perhaps, conspiracy theorists. You know, well, dude, like, Okay, the Mafia is a resistance movement in Sicily to Norse and Saracen invaders, but, like, dude, uh, it is not going to exist in the year 2000, and it isn't going to be in places we haven't even discovered yet. Like, that is too wild a conspiracy theory, dude. Well, it is not a theory. It is a fact, albeit uh, one that is uh, characterized, obviously, by conspiratorial process. The Third Reich did the same thing and was really in a better position to do so because of the profound connections between the Third Reich and powerful institutions in the West and also, in a big way, because of the Cold War. And what we're going to be examining in this program is some of the deep politics and the evolution of elements of the Underground Reich, in particular the Reinhard Galen spy outfit from World War II, how these networks meshed in with CIA psychological warfare and propaganda outfits, how they dovetailed with the Republican Party, and how these networks have evolved and moved through time. Because as we have seen in other Programs about the adventures of Eddie the Friendly Spook, Uh, the milieu—my favorite word—that to which Eddie belongs is basically a CIA-evolved milieu. Uh, Snowden was actually working for the CIA in Geneva, Switzerland, when, by his own account, he was inspired to infiltrate the NSA and to spill its secrets so to speak. Uh, Edward Snowden is not only not what he represents himself as being, but is an extreme right-winger who was adamantly against leaking, hated Obama, thinks we should abolish Social Security, thinks high unemployment is just fine. He basically is, if anything, to the right of the current team of Republican presidential nominees. As incredible as it may seem, he's actually to the right of Donald Trump, who at least nominally gives lip service to preserving Social Security. Not so Eddie the Friendly Spook. And the interests around him from Ron Paul and the neo-Confederate movement deeply connected to uh, Eddie the Friendly Spook and the uh, elements underlying him, to Glenn Greenwald, who, like Edward Snowden, is the opposite of what he has been represented as being, to the WikiLeaks crowd, they are the opposite of what they have been represented as being. But something we are going to be taking up again in this program is the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which has evolved from the CIA's various radio broadcasting uh, outlets, such as Radio Free Europe, Radio uh, Liberty, and Radio Free Asia. These networks, in turn, as we shall see, are inextricably linked in their genesis and operations with the underground Reich and the Galen spy outfit. You'll notice that in many of the tech controversies, so to speak, for example, La Snowden, everybody was going, oh, my God, the NSA, ooh, the NSA, ooh, 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 the NSA, ooh, the NSA, ooh, the NSA. And now in connection with the Apple uh, iPhone hacking case that was the focal point of uh, controversy after the San Bernardino uh, shootings, Everybody's going, ooh, the FBI, ooh, ooh, the FBI, ooh, my God, the FBI, the FBI. But nobody is saying, ooh, ooh, the CIA, ooh, 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 the CIA, watch out, the CIA. And when one looks at the milieu, not only of Eddie the Friendly Stook Snowden, but what I have called the CIA, quote, privacy advocates, unquote, one is looking at a CIA-derived milieu. That is at the core of much of the privacy unquote discussion and that evolved from the CIA broadcasting networks, uh, to the key concepts. The BBG, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which is the U.S. government in effect holding company for the various CIA broadcast psychological warfare outlets and fronts and also the OTF, the Open Technology Fund. What we're going to be looking at, or uh, really sort of asking the question, is to what extent uh, is the milieu of Eddie the Friendly Spook not only a CIA milieu, it certainly is, but to what extent, what I have uh, discussed in the past, the focal point networks that grew within the CIA and through CIA, other branches of government, including the military, uh, under Alan Dulles. In turn, we're going to be taking a look at the Galen Group's links with the Underground Reich and with the Borman Network, and uh, we're going to ask to what extent uh, the Underground Reich has gained control of the CIA focal point networks, basically a secret government within the U.S. government that many of the branches itself uh, are not aware of. So what we're looking at, to what extent is the affair Snowden, a manifestation at one level of the CIA focal point networks and at another level of underground Reich slash Galen org slash BND slash Borman network co-option slash infiltration of the CIA focal point networks. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. Long, article-length descriptions of the For the Record programs are available at SpitfireList.com,
2: also featuring information that wasn't in the original program
1: due to the limitations of time. We're going to begin by reviewing a portion of a text that we have examined in the past. This is from a book called JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died. And Why It Matters by James W. Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S, published in soft cover by Touchstone Books. Douglas writes about the genesis of the focal point networks. We've read this in the past. Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, an Air Force colonel, was charged by Alan Bellas during the 1950s with putting together what were known as focal point networks, a, a focal point network within various government agencies, in particular the military. Uh, people who were actually CIA officers were infiltrated and tagged for special use within these various branches of the military and other parts of the government. Although nominally, you know, military, FAA, what have you, they were actually CIA and answered to CIA in many cases without the full knowledge or any knowledge, by the agencies, including military agencies, to which they belonged ostensibly. And what we're going to do is to jump in, and we're going to examine the distillate, so to speak, of gen- the prouty Bellus genesis of the focal point networks. From JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters by James W. Douglas. Douglas got L. Fletcher Proudy to create a network of subordinate focal point offices in the armed services and then throughout the entire U.S. government. Each office that Proudy set up was put under a cleared, unquote, CIA employee. That person took orders directly from the CIA but functioned under the cover of his particular office and branch of government. Such, quote, reading, unquote said decades later in an interview resulted in a web of covert CIA operatives in the State Department, in the FAA, in the Customs Service, in the Treasury, in the FBI, and all around through the government up to and in the White House. Then we began to assign people there who those agencies thought were from the Defense Department, but they actually were people that we put there from the CIA. The consequence in the early 1960s when Kennedy became president was that the CIA had placed a secret team of its own employees throughout the entire U.S. government. It was accountable to no one except the CIA headed by Alan Dulles. After Dulles was fired by Kennedy, the CIA's Deputy Director of Plans, Richard Helms, became this invisible government's immediate commander. No one except the tight inner circle of the CIA even knew of the existence of this top-secret intelligence network, much less the identity of its deep-cover bureaucrats. These CIA focal points, unquote, as Dulles called them, constituted a powerful, unseen government within the government. Its Dulles-appointed members would act quickly, with total obedience when called on by the CIA to assist its covert operations. of the upshot of that, of course, is that ultimately uh, the CIA began operating domestically and instituting uh, or playing a primary role in coups d'etat here as they had abroad, uh, President Kennedy's murder being uh, just one of those coups. So, as we look at the CIA background of Eddie Snowden and the people around him, the so-called privacy advocates, bear in mind the focal point networks. Now we're going to review some information about the BBG and about the CIA genesis of uh, the propaganda networks uh, that are the parent of the CIA milieu of these, quote, privacy advocates, unquote From the Panda Daily of March 1st of 2015, an article by Yasha Levine, L-E-V-I-M-E, Internet Privacy Funded by Spooks, A Brief History of the BBG, unquote. Again, by Yasha, Y-A-S-H-A, last name Levine, L-E-V-I-M-E, from the Panda Daily of 3-1-2015. It reads in part, For the past few months, I've been covering U.S. government funding ...of popular Internet privacy tools like Tor, CryptoCat, and Open Whisper systems. During my reporting, one agency in particular keeps popping up... ...an agency with one of those really bland names that masks its wild, bizarre history... ...the Broadcasting Board of Governors, or BBG. The BBG was formed in 1999 and runs on a $721 million annual budget. It reports directly to Secretary of State John Kerry and operates like a holding company for a host of Cold War CIA spinoffs and old-school psychological warfare projects, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, Radio map Voice of America, Radio Liberation from Bolshevism since renamed Radio Liberty, and a dozen other government-funded radio stations and media outlets pumping out pro-American propaganda across the globe. Today, the congressionally funded federal agency is also one of the biggest backers of grassroots and open-source Internet privacy technology. That sentence again. Today, this congressionally funded federal agency is also one of the biggest backers of grassroots and open source internet privacy technology. Privacy here <laughs> belongs in some big quotes. Continuing. These investments started in 2012 when the BBG launched the Open Technology Fund or OTF, an initiative housed within and run by Radio Free Asia or RFA, a premier BBG property that broadcasts in the communist countries like North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, China, and Myanmar. The BBG endowed Radio Free Asia's Open Technology Fund with a multi-billion dollar budget and a single task, to fulfill the U.S. Congressional Global Mandate for Internet Freedom, unquote. It's already a mouthful of proverbial Washington alphabet soup. Congress funds BBG to fund RFA to fund OTF, but regardless of which subgroup ultimately writes the check. The important thing to understand is that all this federal government money flows directly or indirectly from the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Between 2012 and 2014, Radio Free Asia's Open Technology Fund poured more than $10 million into Internet Privacy Project's big and small, open-source encrypted communication apps, next-generation secure email initiatives, anti-censorship mesh networking platforms, encryption security audits, secure cloud hosting, a network of high-capacity Tor exit nodes, and even an anonymous Tor-based tool for leakers and whistleblowers that competed with WikiLeaks. The menu of the apps and tech-backed Radio Free Asia's OTF are unknown to the general public. They are highly respected and extremely popular among the anti-surveillance Internet activist crowd. OTF-funded apps have been recommended by Edward Snowden, covered favorably by ProPublica and the New York Times technology reporters, and repeatedly promoted by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Everyone seems to agree that OTF-funded privacy apps offer some of the best protection from government surveillance you can get. In fact, just about all the featured open-source apps on EFF's recent secure messaging scorecard were funded by OTF, parenthetically. I think it is probable that there is a backdoor in these various privacy tools, unquote, which makes them altogether accessible to the agencies that have run them. Continuing some of the background here, continuing with the Yasha Levine article. But why, skipping down, why is a federally funded CIS spinoff with decades of experience in psychological warfare suddenly blowing tens of millions in government funds on privacy tools meant to protect people from being surveilled by another armed of the very same government. To answer that question, we have to pull the camera back and examine how all of those Cold War propaganda outlets that begat the Broadcasting Board of Governors, begat Radio Free Asia, begat the Open Technology Fund. The story begins in the late 1940s. And as you listen to what I'm about to read, bear in mind the Focal Point Networks, and as we will see, the underground-like infiltration of, and I believe ultimately option of much of the U.S. intelligence system. The Broadcasting Board of Governors traces its beginnings to the early Cold War years as a covert propaganda project of the newly created CIA to wage psychological warfare against communist regimes and others deemed a threat to U.S. interests. George K-E-N-N-A-N, the key architect of post-World War II foreign policy, pushed for expanding the role of covert peacetime programs. And so in 1948, National Security Council Directive 10-2 officially authorized the CIA to engage in covert operations against the communist menace. Clause 5 of the directive defined covert operations as propaganda, economic warfare, preventive direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition, and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas, and refugee liberation groups, and support of the indigenous, anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world, unquote propaganda, quickly became one of the key weapons of the CIA's covert operations arsenal. The agency established and funded radio stations, newspapers, magazines, historical societies, emigre, quote, research institutes, unquote, and cultural programs all over Europe. In many cases, it funneled money to outfits run and staffed, by known World War II criminals and Nazi collaborators both in Europe and here in the U.S. Christopher Simpson, author of Blowback, America's Recruitment of Nazis and Its Destructive Impact on Our Domestic and Foreign Policy, details the extent of these psychological warfare projects. CIA-funded psychological warfare projects employing Eastern European emigre became major operations during the 1950s, consuming tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars. This included, included underwriting most of the French Paix et Liberté movement, paying the bills of the German League for struggle against inhumanity, and financing a half-dozen free jurists' associations, a variety of European federalist groups, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, magazines, news services, book publishers, and much more. These were very broad programs designed to influence world public opinion at virtually every level, from illiterate peasants in the fields to the most sophisticated scholars in prestigious universities. They drew on a wide range of sources, labor unions, advertising agencies, college professors, journalists, and student leaders, to name a few. In Europe, the CIA set up Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberation from Bolshevism, later renamed Radio Liberty, which beamed propaganda in several languages into the Soviet Union and Soviet satellite states of Eastern Europe. The CIA later expanded its radio propaganda operations into Asia targeting communist China, North Korea, and Vietnam. The spy agency also funded several radio projects aimed at subverting leftist governments in Central and South America, including Radio Free Cuba and Radio Swan, S-W-A-N, which was run by the CIA and employed some of the same Cuban exiles that took part in the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. Even today the CIA boasts that these early psychological warfare projects, quote, would become one of the longest-running and successful covert action programs ever mounted by the U.S. Officially, note that term, officially the CIA's direct role in this global psychological warfare project diminished in the 1970s after the spy agency's ties to Cold War propaganda arms like Radio Free Europe were exposed. Congress agreed to take over funding of these projects from the CIA, and eventually Washington expanded them into a massive, federally funded apparatus. The names of the various CIA spin-offs and non-profits changed over the years, culminating in a 1999 reorganization under President Bill Clinton, which created the Broadcasting Board of Governors, a parent holding company to group new broadcasting operations around the world, together with Cold War-era propaganda outfits with spooky pasts, including Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, and Radio Free Asia. In that context, do not forget the Focal Point Networks. It is a very good bet in Congress, even in the White House and everywhere else throughout the government, those... Focal point networks were still in operation. Note that Alan Dulles was replaced as head of the CIA, well, initially by John McCone, but ultimately by Richard Helms, who was the deputy director of, of her plans and had actually been in charge of the MK Ultra and other mind control projects for CIA. Now, note again. That one of the fronts here uh, is Radio Liberty, formerly Radio Liberation from Bolshevism. We're now going to review the projection again by Alan Dulles, uh, formerly of Sullivan and Cromwell, arguably the most important of the CIA elite the, of the Wall Street elite law firms, along with his brother John Foster. Again, that, uh, from Sullivan and Cromwell. We're going to look at how this milieu, including, as we will see, Radio Liberty, were projected into the American political theater and into the Republican Party, where they became the dominant element. Reviewing again, and we've reviewed this a couple of times in recent weeks, from The Secret War Against the Jews by John Loftus and Mark Aarons, copyright 1994 by Mark Aarons and published in Hard and Soft, covered by the St. Martin's Press. John Loftus, by the way was in charge of the Justice Department's Office of Special Investigations, looking into Nazi war criminals in the U.S. He quit in 1980 when the incoming Reagan administration, by his own account, as we will see, uh, was the administration filled with the very interest that he had been investigating i going to jump in here after uh, Truman narrowly defeated uh, Thomas Dewey in 1948, Alan Dulles, who was Dewey's campaign manager, and a young Dulles protege named Richard Nixon uh, began to put together the fascist freedom fighter branch of the Republican Party. Skipping down. Vice President Nixon's secret political war of Nazis against Jews in American politics was never investigated at the time. The foreign-language-speaking Croatians and other fascist emigre groups have a ready-made network for contacting and mobilizing the Eastern European ethnic bloc. There is a very high correlation between CIA domestic subsidies to fascist freedom fighters during the 1950s and the leadership of the Republican Party's ethnic campaign groups. The motive for the the under-the-table financing was clear. Nixon used Nazis to offset the Jewish vote for the Democrats, skipping down again. In 1952, Nixon formed an ethnic division within the Republican National Committee. Displaced fascists, hoping to be returned to power by an Eisenhower-Nixon liberation policy, signed on with the committee. In 1953, when Republicans were in office, the immigration laws were changed to admit Nazis and even members of the SS. They flooded into the country, and Nixon himself oversaw the new immigration program. More about this program and some of the key people in it. As a young movie actor in the early 1950s, Ronald Reagan was employed as the public spokesperson for an Office of Policy Coordination Front named the Crusade for Freedom. Reagan may not have known it, but 99% of the Crusade's funds came from clandestine accounts, which were then laundered through the crusade to various organizations such as Radio Liberty, which employed Dulles' fascists. Bill Casey, who later became CIA director under Ronald Reagan, parenthetically, who was also Reagan's campaign manager in 1980, also worked in Germany after World War II on Dulles' Nazi freedom fighters program. When he returned to New York, Casey headed up another OPC front, the International Rescue Committee, which sponsored the immigration of these fascists to the U.S. Casey's committee replaced the International Red Cross as the sponsor for Dulles' recruits. And uh, as we have also seen, the... Nazi branch of the Republican Party formed by Richard Nixon and Alan Dulles and fronted for by Ronald Reagan and facilitated by William Casey was made a permanent branch of the Republican Party in 1973 when George H.W. Bush was head of the Republican National Committee. So when The 1980 election season rolled around. We had Ronald Reagan, the key front person for the fascist freedom fighters program under the Crusade for Freedom. Running for president, we had George H.W. Bush, who made the Nazi branch of the Republican Party permanent when he was head of the RNC. The campaign was managed by William Casey, who assisted the program. Casey then became head of the CIA. Also, most of Reagan's Early cabinet appointees such as Caspar Weinberger, George Shultz, General Alexander Haig, Richard Allen, the first uh, Reagan national security advisor, they were all Richard Nixon cabinet veterans. And those are the role of organizations like Radio Liberty in laundering funds for this operation and in helping to employ some of the most imported fascists. By way of understanding the Galen Organization and the Underground Reich's seminal role in the genesis of this milieu, which ultimately was to coalesce in the late 90s into the Broadcasting Board of Governors and which spawned this uh, CIA-parented milieu, uh, that has, was spoken about in the Yasha Levine article. We're going to jump back 32 years into the archives, and we're going to listen to a portion of AFA number three, recorded in June of 1984, about the Reinhard Galen spy organization. You will also hear, in addition to my own voice, the vo- voice of my very competent and charming former co-host, Nick Tuck, whose on-air duties were essential for the realization Of the archive shows. And note the foundational involvement of Galen in the genesis of these networks. This again from AFA number three recorded in June of 1984.
2: Now, Radio Free Europe, of course, was involved in broadcasting propaganda to the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries. And Reinhard Galen figured very prominently in the formation of Radio Free Europe.
0: You will, may also remember, those of you who do follow the news, that uh, Radio Free Europe has shown up several times lately in the news during the past couple of years because of a, a resurgence of, uh, well, it's hard to say politicization because it's obviously a political thing. But apparently the, the political control of Radio Free Europe has gotten rather heavy-handed under the Reagan administration, we're going to touch on some more recent aspects too, but first we're going to give you some of the early history and some of the Galen connections. Uh, This first section is from a book called Galen, Spy of the Century by E. H. Cookridge, and this is copyright 1971, published by Random House. The Soviet blockade of Berlin was accompanied by violent and effective propaganda by radio leaflets and newspapers which was aimed at frightening West Berliners and West Germans and weakening their trust in the Allies. Hitherto, the latter had made hardly any answer to this concerted propaganda assault. Wisner, who is Frank Wisner, uh, who we've discussed in previous broadcasts, high-ranking American intelligence official, uh, who had early contacts with the Nazis and bringing them into the intelligence system, Wisner, advised by Galen and several of his radio experts, immediately went to work to remedy this situation. A powerful radio transmitter was to be established to counteract communist aggression over the ether. Even when the initial plans were still being drafted, Wisner was envisaging a chain of transmitters broadcasting in all the languages of the many nations within the Soviet orbit, which would fan discontent and encourage opposition and open rebellion against the communist rulers. Initially, there was only one American medium which could be used. This was R.I.A.S., radio in the American sector, the official transmitter of the U.S. military commander in Berlin. It limited its transmission to brief bulletins, news talks, and a great deal of musical entertainment. Wisner had little difficulty in impressing upon Major General Frank L. Howley, the sector commandant, that RIAS programs must be radically revised. Galen provided a few experienced broadcasters, which soon brought more zip into the transmissions. But the plan of the great transmitter took some time. Wisner was unable to obtain from his superiors. He turned to American business tycoons for help. Alan Dulles, whom President Truman had asked to head a committee of three to investigate the effectiveness of Hill and CIA, willingly offered his help. The two company lawyers passed the begging bowl along with splendid success. At that time, several private bodies in the United States, such as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Council Against Communist Aggression, Congress for Cultural Freedom, American Friends of Russian Freedom, the Free Asia Committee, and a number of quote citizens committees in several states and cities, some of which were to lend support to Senator Joseph McCarthy, were engaged in fighting communism in their own fashion. Dulles and Wisner enlisted the prestigious help of General Eisenhower, who had retired from his post as U.S. Chief of Staff to become the president of Columbia University and assembled the Free Europe Committee, whose list of sponsors read like a who's who of American industry and banking. Headed by Alan Valentine, erstwhile Yale history professor and Rhodes Scholar at Oxford who had gone into big business and was a director of the Finance Securities Trust Company, the American Sulphur Corporation, and the Buffalo-Rochester-Pittsburgh Railroad, they included Clark McAdams Clifford, director of the National Bank of Washington. C. Rodney Smith, president of American Airlines. Frank Altschul, senior partner in the banking house of Lazard Freres. C. D. Jackson of the Loose Organization, publishers of Time, Life, and Fortune magazines. A. F. Francis, chairman of the General Food Corporation, the world's largest breakfast cereal manufacturers. Henry Ford II. Edwin H. Land, president of Polaroid. Can William O. Baker, vice president of the Bell Telephones Corporation? There were many more willing donors, amongst them General Motors, General Electric, Westinghouse, Chrysler, United Food, and all the oil companies headed by ESSO and Standard Oil.
2: So, those are some of the people that uh, Wisner turned to to get the funds that he was unable to get from his immediate superiors in the early days of the CIA. Continuing now with the history of Radio Free Europe. Early in 1950, Radio Free Europe was installed in a row of prefabricated buildings in the Englischer Garten, a pleasant park in the center of Munich. Within an amazingly brief period, with an initial budget of $10 million, Radio Free Europe began its transmissions from its new, powerful station. It also used existing transmitters in several friendly countries. In the course of time, Radio Free Europe grew into a chain of 29 radio stations, beaming round-the-clock anti-communist propaganda in 16 languages to East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and the former Baltic states. Broadcasts in Albanian were eventually discontinued when it was discovered that there were very few radio receivers in Albania. A chain of transmitters was also set up in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Japan, which cover the Middle East, Africa, Asiatic Russia, Southeast Asia, and the Far East. From Frankfurt, the War of the Ether was initiated by a kindred foundation, Radio Liberty, which broadcast exclusively to the Soviet Union in a multitude of its languages and dialects, from Russian, Ukrainian, Ruthenian, Finnish, and Latvian, to Turkoman, Tadzik, Chuvak, and the Ural-Altaic dialects of Mongolia. The official Voice of America completed the mighty barrage, catering for listeners with sufficient knowledge of English. Galen eagerly cooperated from the very outset with Radio Free Europe and its supervisors from the Office of Poli- Policy Coordination, Colonel Kotek and William Griffith. He delegated as his liaison officer, ex-S.A. Peter Fischer, who went under the alias of Major Fiedler. He had become the chief radio expert at Pulak and could boast excellent credentials. During the war, he had served in the SD in the Netherlands under SS Sturmbannfuhrer Joseph Schreider, who had been instrumental in conducting funkspiel radio deceptions with London. Succeeding in catching by the use of fake signals, nearly every SOE agent set, sent to the Dutch resistance, count, Dutch resistance from England and also the leaders of the Resistance Council. SOE, by the way, is the British Special Operations Executive, which conducted covert operations on in mainland Europe during the war. And a fellow by the name of William Stevenson, who we're going to refer to later in the broadcast, uh, was a member of that organization, and he uh, wrote about Galen as well. So Galen was instrumental in setting up Radio Free Europe, uh, which basically broadcast to the communist countries and uh... was ostensibly presenting them with the view of uh... freedom and uh... it's worth noting the the heavy galen links with this organization because are indications that uh... basically these radio free europe uh... galen links have uh... been maintained at least to a certain extent right up into uh... the last few years now in the Second of our Radio Free America broadcasts, we talked about a uh, Romanian Iron Guardist, a Romanian fascist, uh, part of the Romanian native fascist movement sponsored by and allied to Nazi Germany. He was a fellow by the name of, initially, uh, Viorel and later Valerian Trifa. Now, he worked uh, for Galen near the end of World War II. Eventually, he became the Archbishop of the Romanian-American Orthodox Episcopate and was close to, among others, J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Milhouse Nixon. Specifically, was called upon by Nixon to give the opening prayer before the United States Senate in 1955. Now, he worked for Galen, as we saw in a book called Wanda: of the Search for Nazis in America. At the end of World War II, there are indications that uh, he went to work for Galen, that he stayed working with the Galen organization, uh, when Galen jumped to the United States. And, uh, well, uh, VRL Trefa cropped up, or Valerian Trifa cropped up on news within the, several times in the last few years. And, uh, as I said, there are indications that the Galen organization maintains its contacts with Radio Free Europe.
0: All right, this next selection is an article from the San Francisco Chronicle for Wednesday, February 20th, 1980. 1980. This is a Jack Anderson column, and it's entitled RFE, or Radio Free Europe, in hot water. And it reads as follows, Radio Free Europe, which gets $85 million from American taxpayers each year for beaming propaganda to the communist world, has touched off a congressional investigation by broadcasting a lengthy interview with an alleged Nazi war criminal and then firing two employees who blew the whistle on the outrageous program. The RFE official directly responsible for the broadcast has not been reprimanded possibly because he has a close friend and former RFE colleague on the staff of the President's National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Chairman John Granowski of the Board for International Broadcasting, which supervises RFE, has appointed a special counsel to look into the matter. The interview, last May 1st, gave a sympathetic airing to the views of Valerian Trifa. Justice Department documents charge that Trifa as a leader of the Nazi-oriented Iron Guard in his native Romania, was personally responsible for the deaths of 4,000 Jews in a 1941 pogrom. He eventually came to this country Settled in Detroit and became a bishop of the Romanian American Orthodox Episcopate. I should just put in, in parenthetically here, according to Bloom, whose uh, book Dave mentioned, um, he got the name Valerian, which is his uh, his bishop's name, and got his bishopship or his bishopric um, when he and a bunch of his Iron Guard thugs literally surrounded the house of the present bishop in uh, upstate Michigan, uh, dragged the priests out, beat them with clubs, and literally took over the uh, the leadership of the Romanian Orthodox Church, according to what. Uh, to bloom's book wanted the search for nazis in america anyway going back to anderson's article he eventually came to this country settled in detroit and became a bishop of the romanian american orthodox episcopate the justice department is trying to deport him on grounds that he lied about his past when he became a u.s. citizen congressional investigators for representative elizabeth holtzman democrat of new york have received evidence that quote the broadcast was not simply an inadvertent judgmental error but represented a conscious management decision made over staff objections. It was, said the investigators, quote, part of a pattern of such questionable decisions with respect to both substance and personnel made over the past several years, unquote. The investigators also found that Radio Free Europe employees, quote, have been harassed and threatened for attempting publicly to expose what they consider to be the facts of this case, unquote. Indeed, two employees in the Romanian broadcast division, Edgar Raphael and Jacob Popper, have been fired, apparently because they told Holtzman about the Trifa situation. Radio Free Europe president Glenn Ferguson ignored a specific directive from Gronowski not to fire the two men. Noel Bernard, director of the Romanian service, is still riding high at Radio Free Europe. Sources say he is an old pal of Paul Henze, H-E-N-Z-E, a veteran CIA operative who is now a member of Brzezinski's White House staff. The two served together at Radio Free Europe's Munich station in the 1950s.
1: I begin from AFA number three from June of 1984. Uh, we should note uh, the perpetuation of that milieu into the present period, when, as we look at in for the record nine oh one, we see a uh, Croatian Ustashi elements coming to power openly now in the in Croatia, the part of the former Yugoslavia, when we see the OUNB World War ii era fascists basically coming to power in Ukraine, and criminalizing an accurate reporting of the World War II history in Ukraine, and even more importantly, when we see our media and our political establishment functioning in lockstep in conjunction with uh, what I call the Underground Reich, people need to ask themselves how this happened. And the Reagan administration, as we saw, ultimately used the Free Congress Foundation's liberation uh, branch to project these same elements back into the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. The Galen Org that we have spoken about so many times was a unique organization. Uh, We've spoken about its work uh, with CIA, with NATO, with uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, where it remains to this day, with BND officers being hired from the families of former officers, hundreds of which were members of the SS and Gestapo, as we have looked at in a number of programs. We have not, however, taken a look at the work of the Galen Org with Army Intelligence. The first collaborative U.S. agency with the Galen Org was Army Intelligence, thereby facilitating the infiltration of Army Intel by these same networks there's a very good account of this in one of the best recent books about Operation Paperclip, the importation of these Nazis to work uh, for our Defense Department and CIA. Operation Paperclip was authored by Annie Jacobson, J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N, published in hardcover by Little Brown. And there is this account of the Galen Org, its composition, its nature, and its work with Army intelligence. Galen had been in the U.S. under interrogation since 1945. Here at Oberursel, Army Intelligence decided to make Galen the head of its entire anti-communist intelligence organization under the codename Operation Rusty, R-U-S-T-Y. Eventually, the organization would simply become known as the Galen Organization, a network of former Nazi intelligence agents, the majority of whom were members of the SS, began working out of offices at Camp King side-by-side with Army Intelligence officers. Colonel William Russell Philp was in charge of overall supervision. By late 1947, the Galen organization got so large that it required its own headquarters. Army Intelligence moved the organization to a self-contained facility outside Munich in a village called Pulak. This compound was the former estate of Martin Borman and had large grounds, sculpture gardens, and a pool, skipping down. According to documents kept classified for 51 years, relations between Galen and Philip declined and became hostile when Philip finally realized the true nature of who he was dealing with. The Galen organization was a murderous bunch, freewheeling, unquote, and out of control. As one CIA affiliate observed, American intelligence is a rich blind man using the Abwehr as a seeing eye dog. The only trouble is, the leash is much too long. The Army became fed up with the Galen organization, but there was no way out. Its operatives were professional double-crossers and liars. Many were also alleged war criminals, and now they had the Army over a barrel. Decades later it would emerge that General Galen was reportedly earning a million dollars a year. Note, again, that most of these uh, operatives were members of the SS, and note that eventually the Army realized who it was dealing with, but there was nothing they could do because, quote, its operatives were professional double-crossers and liars. The army, in addition to CIA, in addition to the Republican Party, NATO, and ultimately the Federal Republic of Germany, was one of the institutions corrupted by what was essentially a direct outgrowth of the Third Reich's uh, national security establishment. Uh, and turning to Martin Bormann Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning, uh, for, available for download for free on the website. Note that about Bormann and his relationship with the Thiessen family, and one of the reasons for that. Borman felt that Fritz Th- Thiessen was his ace in the hole if he ever needed a pipeline to Alan W. Dulles. And note that here. Uh, also from Martin Borman, Nazi in exile, Even General Galen, he, when he was chief of the Federal Republic's intelligence service, sent his agents to confer with General Heinrich Mueller, in South America. And also from that same book, the CIA could have pulled aside the gray curtain that obscured Bormann at any time. But the CIA and former Gestapo chief Heinrich Müller's crack organization of former SS men found it to their mutual advantage to cooperate in many situations. There is no morality, in the sense that most of us know it, in the strange world of professional secrecy, and when it was to the advantage of each to work together they did so. And note also, from the Secret Treaty of Fort Hunt, an article by Carl Oglesby, from Covert Action Information bulletin No. 35 from the fall of 1990, Galen met with Admiral Carl Dinnitz, who had been appointed by Hitler as his successor during the last days of the Third Reich. Galen and the Admiral were now in a U.S. Army VIP prison camp in Wiesbaden. Galen sought and received approval from Admiral Dunitz, too. As Galen was about to leave for the U.S., he left a message for Gerhard Bonn with another of his top aides, Gerhard Vessel. I am to tell you from Galen that he has discussed with Hitler's successor, Admiral Karl Dunitz, and Galen's superior and chief of staff, General Franz Honderd, the question of continuing his work with the Americans. Both were in agreement and look at, for historical purposes, who was in charge, who was the congressional liaison to Alan Dulles' CIA in this time period when the Crusade for Freedom, the fascist freedom fighters program, the uh, genesis of the focal point networks, the gaining of momentum by the various psychological warfare fronts, such as Radio Liberty was going on, from the devil's chessboard, Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the rise of America's secret government, we read by David Talbot, we read, the CIA operated with virtually no congressional oversight. In the Senate, Dulles relied on Wall Street friends like Prescott Bush of Connecticut, the father and grandfather of two future presidents, to protect the CIA's interests. The point being that Prescott Bush, part of the Union Banking Corporation and the various corporate fronts that collaborated with the CIA and uh, that collaborated, rather, with Nazi Germany. Prescott Bush, along with George Herbert Walker, uh, were deeply involved with those, and that inevitably places them in, they were business partners of the t that places them in the same milieu of the Borman Network and the Underground Reich. And Prescott Bush, was Alan Dulles' name liaison to the Senate. A very interesting development, as we take a look at the milieu of Ebi uh, the Friendly Spook, and we find uh, Pierre Omidyar, who generated the Intercept, and that employed Glenn Greenwald, who basically, if you stood next to Glenn Greenwald and threw a rock in the air, the chances are about 90% that rock would land on a Nazi. And as we look at the historical underpinnings for what is now manifesting itself with a new Cold War, with fascist groups uh, dating to World War II, now in ascendance all over Europe and elsewhere, Pierre Omidyar not only helped to fund the Ukrainian coup, he also helped to finance the ascension of Narendra Modi and his Hindu fascist government in India as well. And guess who Pierre Omidyar has, has employed uh, as an Omidyar Fellow. This from the Pando Daily by Mark Ames. What the hell? Pierre Omidyar selects one of Edward Snowden's former Booz Allen bosses to be an Omidyar Fellow. This from the Pando Daily of March 16th of 2015. Edward Snowden was a Booz Allen Hamilton employee in Hawaii when he worked as a subcontractor for the NSA and made off with hundreds of thousands of the spy agencies. Files, skipping down. So it may come as a surprise that billionaire Pierre Omidyar, publisher of The Intercept, which owns the only complete cash of Snowden's NSA secrets, financier of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, where Snowden serves on the board of directors, has just selected one of Snowden's former bosses at Booz Allen's Hawaii branch to join the Omidyar Fellows Program. His name is Robert Litsky, L-I-E-T-Z-K-E, and he's a principal at Booz Allen's Hawaii branch where he worked for over 15 years. So who knows about Robert Litzke? Might he have been part of the Evolved Focal Point Networks? Might he be uh, taking money from her? Perhaps, who knows? I know I couldn't find much about his background. Uh, does he perhaps have an underground Reich affiliation or genesis? That is obviously conjecture. But it is really interesting that Pierre Omidyar would hire one of Eddie the Friendly Spook's apparent superiors at Booz Allen Hamilton. I would also love that the NSA subcontracts out Uh, about 70% of its operations. I sometimes wonder what in the world they were thinking. How could they not have expected to be infiltrated and subverted as an institution? It seems to me to be a perfect blueprint to set the stage for infiltration. So again, uh, to what extent are some of the uh, focal point networks perhaps using funding from uh, the Underground Reich or other networks in uh, Martin Bormann, Nazi, in Exile, but also in Gold Warriors by the Seagrades. The role of uh, Axis Loot, the Bormann network, the Black Eagle Trust, uh, the Golden Lily Caches, were used to finance covert operations during the Cold War. To what extent were the focal point networks funded and co-opted? Or is that what we are looking at with the affairs? No food for thought and grounds for further research.
0: This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from MP3 Archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Or if you'd like to download them a hundred at a time, you can do that from unwelcomeguests.net slash downloads. Thanks to Olivier for pointing me to Dave Emery. If you'd like to suggest material for the show, you can contact me on welcome at unwelcomeguests.net.